Welcome to Failed Utopia, the podcast about utopian ideas and paradise lost. We look at utopian concepts of the past, present, and future, as well as utopian communities and cults, which promise the world to eager followers, but inevitably fail when it all starts to unravel. Failed Utopia fans, this is Earth Climate Crisis Part 2. Thanks for being here. I know this topic might be pretty disheartening, partly because of my attitude, but mostly because of the harsh light of reality. But today we're going to talk about renewable energy, some cool science innovations, and how we can still save the future and not end up living in a Mad Max sequel with Tom Hardy. Last time, we talked about why the main thing we need to do is stop using fossil fuels right away. The main way we can stop using fossil fuels is to electrify as many industries as possible as quickly as possible. We're talking food production, transportation, heating and cooling, manufacturing, and construction, but that's only half the story. Just switching to electric power won't help us if we're still generating our electricity mostly with fossil fuels, which is currently the case. Right now, the vast majority of the world's energy comes from fossil fuels, about 84%. The other 16% comes from lower carbon sources, including renewables and nuclear. When we zoom in to generating electricity specifically, About 63% is currently coming from fossil fuels, 10% comes from nuclear, and the rest, less than one-third, from renewables. And because the world's demand for electricity is skyrocketing, it's getting harder and harder for renewables to have a shot at keeping up with the massive demand. Renewable energy is getting cheaper, more efficient, and more widely available but it's still vastly outstripped by demand. This means emissions due to electricity are still on the rise. And unfortunately, there are a couple of reasons why that problem is going to get much worse for the foreseeable future. I'm sorry that sounds so depressing, and I promise I will get to some kinda sorta good news later, but first we need to set up some groundwork in order to understand the problem. The first issue we need to consider is population growth. The human population more or less quadrupled over the last century, and the global population continues to rise. Current projections by the UN say the human population will probably peak at 11 billion people around the end of this century, 2100. The good news is that overpopulation is a problem that has more or less already solved itself. Explosive population growth isn't a fixed characteristic of any human society. It's just a phase of a global phenomenon called demographic transition. Very briefly, pre-industrial societies around the world mostly started out with lots of people being born, but lots of them also dying from disease and starvation and the like, 
so populations didn't grow much. Then, in some parts of the world, the Industrial Revolution introduced better food, hygiene, and medicines, as well as economic opportunities and the relative liberation of women, all of which led to a far higher standard of living for almost everyone living in those societies. That's when explosive population growth occurs. Lots of people are born, and most of them survive. But now that more offspring could be expected to survive, people start having fewer children to begin with, and the population starts to stabilize and then drop off. Birth rates are closely tied to educational and economic opportunities for girls and women and access to reliable contraceptives. That's why in most developed countries today, birth rates have dropped precipitously, in many cases below replacement level, and enough to cause economic alarm. In some parts of the world, the demographic transition is currently underway. That's why population growth is still explosive in some parts of the world, like Sub-Saharan Africa. It's a matter of time until the entire world has basically undergone this whole process. And as time goes on, societies are completing the transition process much more quickly than previous societies did. International assistance to help developing countries lower infant mortality rates and increase access to education and jobs and contraception all help the process go even more quickly. That's all really good news because it means that most of the world is experiencing a much higher standard of living and far lower rates of infant and child mortality, extreme poverty, etc. But today we're talking about the climate, and in a nutshell, the human population is set to continue growing until the end of the century, increasing by about 40%. More people means more carbon emissions and strain on Earth's resources. Which leads me to the next reason carbon emissions are expected to get far worse for the foreseeable future. Economic growth. Historically, a handful of nations have developed and become rich while emitting greenhouse gases with reckless abandon. Now that we're at a climate tipping point, countries who are in the process of industrial development are left in the lurch because, obviously, it would be unethical and unworkable to ask those countries not to develop and essentially to remain poor for the sake of the environment. As is so often the case, the people hit hardest by the worst effects of climate change are the people least able to afford it and those who contributed to the problem the least. Developing countries will likely be hit the hardest by drought, crop failures, heat waves, natural disasters, population displacement, and resource-related conflict. In fact, it's already happening. At the recent United Nations General Assembly, the president of Maldives said, the difference between one and a half degrees and two degrees is a death sentence for the Maldives. End quote. Island and low-lying nations are already in desperate straits. The Guyanese president put an appeal to reason this way. We hold out hope that the world's worst emitters of greenhouse gases that are affecting the welfare of all mankind will also come to the realization that, in the end, it will profit them little to emerge king over a world of dust. 
At that same UN assembly, Joe Biden said he would work with the U.S. Congress to double funding to assist developing countries with climate impacts to about $11.5 billion per year by 2024. Work with Congress? Good luck with that, Joe. At the time of this recording, the U.S. Congress is locked in a mind-numbingly stupid and embarrassing battle over whether to go ahead and keep the government running or shut it down and trigger an economic catastrophe for the American people just for the hell of it, and have done absolutely nothing to address the underlying gridlock except kick the can down the road to December. Never mind actually getting anything done or passing any actual legislation. Another thing Congress is currently fighting over is the climate measures contained in Biden's infrastructure bill and associated spending package. By the way, is it a little ironic that the climate measures are married to an infrastructure bill? Everyone seems to agree that we need to fix America's roads and bridges. But if we don't do anything about the construction status quo, that's going to have a massive climate impact. Did you know that concrete alone accounts for 8% of global carbon emissions? And the emissions associated with building a new electric car are comparable to building just a few feet of roadway. Anyway, the climate measures in the proposed deal include things like increasing infrastructure resilience for climate impacts like extreme weather events, investment in carbon capture and storage, funding for energy research, a sweeping clean energy initiative to get the electrical grid off of fossil fuels, installing electric vehicle charging infrastructure across the country, and improving public transit, among other things. Biden's goal is to cut U.S. carbon emissions in half by 2030. It's not going very well. Drastic measures are needed, but the majority of Congress is unwilling to take even baby steps. The big hang-up, of course, seems to be the cost. But it's worth noting, number one, that it will be much more expensive in the long term to react to the most devastating effects of climate change after the fact, not to mention the human death and suffering toll. And number two, the only reason the climate provisions price tag is so big now is that nothing was done for several decades, so now we have to do it all at once. And that's the reason for the big numbers. Also, the numbers aren't even that big compared to what we spend on all sorts of other stuff. So the money is there. Honestly, I was planning on talking about some of the details in those legislation packages today, but with the process hopelessly mired and massive cuts to the package being negotiated as we speak, the devil is in the details, so there's probably not much point. Critics say the spending even in the original plan was insufficient to meet the goals outlined, and things are being whittled way down from there. I may record an update on that for you guys at some point, depending on how it turns out. I think the goal is to pass something by the end of October, before the next big international climate summit, the COP26 in November, but we'll see. So. With the richest and most developed nations unwilling to take significant action on climate, well, the rest of the world can't really fix the problem without us. 
In theory, the richest countries who became wealthy through industrialization and caused the climate crisis in the process have the resources to develop new technology and solutions and help the rest of the world curb their emissions and mitigate climate impacts. By the way, this isn't just a capitalism thing. Economic growth and reducing poverty leads to higher emissions everywhere, no matter the economic or political system. The countries who historically caused the vast majority of emissions aren't necessarily the same ones causing the most emissions now or in the future. Developing countries with very large populations are going to be emitting more in the future as their economies grow and more of their citizens are lifted out of poverty and even into the middle class. But the world needs to stop emitting carbon now. So if we don't want economies that are currently developing to be dependent on fossil fuels, that means making low-carbon energy cheap and widely available. Some people even think it's possible for countries that are industrializing now to completely skip over the dirty fossil fuel phase and move straight into the green energy future. That sounds ideal, but we're not there yet. Not even close. So let's talk about energy options, renewables, and yes, nuclear. When you hear the term renewable energy, I'm guessing that two of the first things that come to mind are wind and solar. The benefits hopefully are obvious by now, they're unlimited, and we don't have to do anything to create sun or wind, we just have to harness it. Both technologies have been around for a while, so they're getting better and cheaper. And crucially, they aren't fossil fuels. But they aren't without their downsides. Wind farms use up a lot of land, are noisy and harmful to wildlife, and the not-in-my-backyard crowd hates them. Solar panels, likewise, take up a lot of space, aren't all that efficient because of thermodynamics, and have pollution and hazardous material drawbacks. But the big problem with wind and solar that keeps them from replacing fossil fuels today is the intermittent nature of both. The sun's not always shining and the wind isn't always blowing. That's a solvable problem. But our tech isn't far enough along. We need new batteries and storage facilities for the power they generate, so it can be stored and then released another time when it's needed. So the solution is there, but it's a ways off. Hydropower is great and reliable, but only if you happen to be near a suitable body of water. And dams can be catastrophic to wildlife and ecosystems. Worse, output could be in severe jeopardy, going into an era of unprecedented drought in many parts of the world. Tidal generators are cool but expensive and harmful to the environment and marine life. Geothermal is also cool but expensive and is only useful at scale in geographic regions near fault lines and uses a process similar to fracking, which can cause surface instability and earthquakes. However, if we're willing to frack for natural gas, 
we shouldn't let that hold us up from using geothermal technology. What's really sad is that back in 2005, restrictions were eased up on fracking for gas and oil, but not for geothermal. So it's cheaper, faster, and easier to go after the fossil fuels than the renewable alternative. Nuclear energy is a very controversial and emotional subject for many people. For understandable reasons, many people think we should have pulled the plug on nuclear reactors long ago. Between nuclear waste and the fear of disasters, many people just don't think the risks are worth it. There are a couple of reasons why nuclear energy gets a bad rap. The first, which I just alluded to, is the fear of accidents and the dangers associated with nuclear waste. Storing the waste indefinitely is not a great idea. We finally realized that dumping it straight into the ocean was also not a good idea. And while it is possible to reprocess spent fuel to create either weapons or new fuel, it doesn't actually get reprocessed because we don't have the right type of reactor technology for the reprocessed materials. Much like the failure to recycle materials in just about every industry. The second big problem is the connection between nuclear energy and nuclear weapons. Reactor technology is needed to develop weapons technology. So there is a real danger of nuclear weapons proliferation. And in fact, there are now several countries with nuclear weapons arsenals, which they achieved with the help of reactor technology. And it can be hard to differentiate peaceful nuclear energy development from a covert weapons program. But despite the perceived dangers, nuclear energy is actually surprisingly safe. It seems counterintuitive, but adjusted for deaths per unit of energy, nuclear is orders of magnitude less dangerous than burning fossil fuels. In fact, a 2013 study by NASA concluded that nuclear energy has prevented 1.8 million deaths, even including disasters like Chernobyl and Fukushima. Nuclear energy ranks dead last in deaths per energy unit, even lower than renewables like wind, solar, and hydro. And in regard to nuclear waste, sequestering it underground forever sounds pretty bad. But wouldn't it be worse to pump it straight into the environment? Guess what? That's exactly what we do with fossil fuel emissions. Burning fossil fuels kills almost 9 million people globally every year because of pervasive air pollution. So nuclear energy is actually pretty safe now and technology does exist to make it much safer. Back in the early 70s, when war in the Middle East caused oil prices to spike, nuclear energy really hit its stride and reactors started popping up all over the world. There were actually multiple types of reactor technologies available at that time, but people being people, they opted not for the safest or best technology, but the cheapest, which was the light water reactor. About a decade after the start of the nuclear reactor boom, Three Mile Island's core meltdown somewhat dampened enthusiasm for nuclear energy. 
The Chernobyl catastrophe in 1986 didn't help. And by the end of the 80s, nuclear technology was stagnating and has largely been out of favor ever since. There are some new reactors being built around the world, but most of those in operation are old technology, and the vast majority are the light water reactors, which, as I mentioned, are not the most safe or effective. Now, I'm not a fan of nuclear myself. I wish that activists back in the 70s had been able to lead us into using renewables to replace fossil fuels. But today, any energy capacity lost by shutting down nuclear plants will likely be replaced by fossil fuels. Renewables simply don't have the capacity to replace nuclear. And even if we did replace lost energy capacity from nuclear plants with renewable energy, we'd just be replacing clean energy with clean energy instead of replacing fossil fuels with clean energy, which is the only thing that will help. When the Indian Point nuclear plant near New York City was shut down earlier this year because of decades of public pressure and anti-nuclear activism, its energy capacity was replaced by natural gas. Which is too bad, because until then, the vast majority of non-fossil fuel energy used in New York had come from the Indian Point plant. The bottom line on nuclear is that while we may not like it, we probably can't save ourselves from the climate crisis without it. Any nuclear facility shut down today means more fossil fuels today and for the foreseeable future. Even best-case scenarios indicate it will be decades before renewables can fully replace fossil fuels. The think tank Carbon Tracker optimistically says it could be by 2050. But that's not fast enough, especially considering what I said earlier about projected population and economic growth over the next few decades. Maybe it's a good idea to abandon nuclear in the long term, but possibly not in the short term. So what does it all mean? The state of renewables today is not nearly robust enough to take over from fossil fuels anywhere near as quickly as we need it to. We also probably cannot wean ourselves off of fossil fuels without continuing and even increasing our use of nuclear energy. The upshot is that we need to be using absolutely every type of technology that is currently available to buy ourselves enough time to develop new technology innovations, such as batteries and storage capacity for renewable energy and more effective ways to remove carbon dioxide we've already emitted from the atmosphere. Without new technology, we can't get to net zero. We have to buy ourselves some time for new innovations by using the technology we have now to limit greenhouse gas emissions as much as we can immediately. That probably means using everything I mentioned on this episode and some that I didn't, in spite of their downsides. There's no sense arguing over which solutions to try at this point. We have to do it all. So let's just say for the time being, carbon emissions keep going up, and it seems that's the likely possibility. Carbon capture and sequestration is the process of capturing CO2 at the point of emission, and then either using it to create new products like building materials 
or storing it in an underground geologic formation forever. This sounds like a pretty decent solution if we can't stop emitting carbon. Some experts believe using carbon capture may be the only feasible way to decarbonize the industrial sector. The only reason I found that this technology is not widely used is the cost, which is pretty sad, but it is expensive and no one seems to be volunteering to pay for it. It's different from profitable green tech like renewable energy and electric cars, which present an economic opportunity. Carbon capture is a cost with no return on investment, so companies aren't incentivized to implement it. Why the government hasn't done anything about that, or at least started aggressively pricing or taxing carbon, was hopefully addressed by my rants in the last episode about industry lobbyists and climate denial. But can't some new scientific breakthrough save us? Technology usually seems to be the solution to big problems, and smart people are always coming up with cool new ideas. You may have heard about some really neat stuff lately, like robotic seaweed farms for carbon sequestration, the whitest paint ever developed, which could cool buildings even better than air conditioning, greener concrete alternatives, synthetic kerosene for jet fuel, or hydro panels that pull drinking water out of thin air. These are all really cool new technologies, and I have more info linked in the show notes if you're interested. But the upshot on all these types of breakthroughs is that they're in the very early stages of development and need time and money to determine if they're even viable or useful at scale. Since we don't know which ones will turn out to be useful, we have to be willing to massively invest in as many as we can and understand that some of them will work out and some of them won't. But they all need more time, and that's what we're running out of. Let's say it's a few decades from now and we're getting really desperate. Can't we do something drastic to make a huge change right away? Geoengineering is sometimes held up as the moonshot we might be forced to take if we just can't get emissions down any other way. There are some wild ideas out there, but the most likely one to actually be put into use sometime soonish is stratospheric aerosol injection which just means spraying particles into the atmosphere to block some solar radiation. Injecting sulfur particles into the atmosphere would cost several billion dollars a year, but it's doable with the technology we have now. In theory, it could slow down global warming. However, the process could also affect rain patterns, causing agricultural disaster and famine for potentially billions of people. The sulfuric acid produced by the process longer term would also break down the ozone layer and heat the upper stratosphere even more. So if we kept emitting greenhouse gases while carrying out geoengineering, when we finally stopped putting particles into the air, it could trigger termination shock, meaning Earth would heat very rapidly, resulting in a massive climate shock that would cause catastrophic ecological collapse. That's the worst case scenario. And of course, the best case scenario would be using geoengineering to buy ourselves a little more time to finish transitioning to clean energy. 
Hopefully, it won't come to that. And speaking of particles in the air, here's one more thing to keep you up at night. Renowned former NASA climate scientist James Hansen, who testified to Congress on climate change over 30 years ago, recently warned that climate change in the next 25 years could be double what it was in the previous 50 years. That's because new environmental standards implemented since the 1970s have slowly reduced air pollution, including sulfate aerosols, saving countless lives, but with the side effect that those aerosols are no longer partially masking the true effects of warming. It's basically the exact reverse of that geoengineering process I just described. But if warming does speed up as Hansen and others suspect, the only thing we can do is, you guessed it, reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Not just carbon, mind you. Methane, nitrous oxide, and a few other industrial gases also contribute to warming. And, of course, there are some other things we can do, like protecting ecosystems and planting trees, or implementing stringent environmental standards for new construction. The problem with things like that is usually to do with money. Yes, these things are costly, and many of the measures that will actually yield results will increase costs and prices for various things, or prevent somebody from making money. Right now, no one really seems ready to step up with the cash we need to make the big changes. I've talked about money a lot in this episode, and beyond a short-sighted unwillingness to spend a little money now to mitigate an impending global catastrophe with the potential to destroy prospects for future generations of humans, one of the aspects of the climate conversation I find most perplexing is the false choice between the economy and the planet. In the least words possible, ruining the environment will ruin the economy. To use a few more words, extreme weather cost the U.S. alone $95 billion last year and $1.9 trillion since 1980. Unchecked climate change will affect agricultural productivity, mortality, migration, also known as climate refugees, crime, storm activity, flooding, and coastal inundation, all of which will have catastrophic economic impacts. Insurance giant Swiss Re predicts climate change impacts will cost the world economy $23 trillion in 2050. Meanwhile, green energy is profitable and has and will create millions of jobs. I do care about oil and coal workers, and they deserve to make a living. But I think it's condescending to say those people couldn't possibly be capable of working in some other job, even another job in the energy sector. For as much attention as coal workers get in politics, especially during presidential election years, you'd think coal mining must be a massive industry to get the fervent national focus and attention that it does. Actually, it might surprise you to know that as of 2019, there were only about 50,000 jobs in coal mining in the U.S., less than 16,000 of which were actual extraction workers. That's out of 129 million workers overall, and down from over 880,000 workers at the industry's peak in the 1920s. 
Maybe that still sounds like a lot, but as the Washington Post observed after a 2016 election that featured coal mining in a prominent role, there are more ophthalmic laboratory technicians than coal miners. That's people who make glasses and contact lenses, by the way. There are almost seven times as many flight attendants than coal miners. There are 14 times as many telemarketers than coal miners. And coal mining is low-paying, dangerous work, decimating the health of generations of miners and their families and communities. It's so bad that it's known as a sacrificial industry, sacrificing workers for the energy we need and demand. So why do we hear about saving this small sector of terrible coal mining jobs so much? They happen to be concentrated in critical swing states where coal mining is a cultural identity, not just a job. And these are states presidential candidates have to win to take an election. But the real reason there aren't many coal jobs left has nothing to do with politics. It's that competition has been going for decades to more efficient and cheaper options like natural gas. Plus automation, which affects nearly every industry, not just coal. This isn't to say dealing with climate change might not be painful in some ways. We've waited so long that what could have been done incrementally now requires deep and drastic measures. Although you could say that if the government were to stop subsidizing fossil fuels, which artificially keeps the prices of gas, food, and consumer goods low, we could put that money into subsidizing research, development, and implementation of green technologies. The problem is, if we just stop subsidizing fossil fuels and don't do anything else to help people out, rising costs will be really hard on poor and even middle-class people. And nothing makes people mad faster than gas prices going up. If we reduce the supply of oil before reducing the demand, prices will skyrocket. That scenario could risk the public's will to cut back on fossil fuels in the first place. Okay, I promised you guys some good news in this episode. So I'm going to tell you about one big thing that would actually be pretty much the silver bullet for all the problems we just talked about. And then I'm going to do my best at giving an optimistic little speech to try to end this on a high note. What is this silver bullet, you ask? Is there one energy solution to rule them all? Yes, maybe. The first fusion reactor might finally be here soon. Fusion reactors work by creating nuclear fusion, which is what makes stars burn, in a confinement reactor basically creating a little sun on Earth. Multiple fusion projects have passed big milestones this year. The International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor in France is supposedly set to produce more energy than it uses to produce it by 2035. That said, generating a useful amount of energy and large-scale implementation would still be years away. But imagine a future with unlimited clean energy. It's basically the holy grail of energy solutions. Fusion energy promises unlimited energy from just a little seawater, no harmful waste byproducts, 
and essentially no negative environmental impacts. And fusion reactors can't melt down like nuclear plants. If the confinement fails, the reaction stops. The problem is the technology still needs billions in investment to develop, and we don't actually know whether it will ever be viable or when. Still, it holds a lot of promise if it works and if we can get it up to scale before we run out of time. And my parting thought is this. As much as it seems like there's only bad news when it comes to the climate crisis, there actually is every reason to be hopeful. The fact that humans have survived as long as we have is a pretty good testament to just how intelligent, creative, and adaptable we are as a species. We've solved so many problems, so many huge problems, and gone on to survive and thrive. We put men on the moon and learned to cure deadly diseases and invented computers and split the atom. There's really no doubt whatsoever that we can't solve this. We absolutely can, 100%. We just have to actually try. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow and leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to help other people find it. Tell your friends about it. And if you want to support the pod directly and help keep new episodes coming, you can donate to the show through the link at the bottom of the show notes. Connect and stay in the loop on the website, failedutopia.com or the Facebook page at Failed Utopia Pod. Failed Utopia episodes are written and produced by me, Anna Roberts. The burning palm tree painting featured on the cover is by artist Perry Vasquez. My intro music is by Elliot Middleton. See you next time.